find again and again as we go through Revelation, the themes that emerge out of the book are, are so consistent. What we see arise and, and the message overall of the entire book uh, seems to be quite repetitive in its patterning and the way that the book is established in in attempt to communicate a particular word that we would continue to go over and we'd be continued to be reminded of. The Word of God tends to work in that manner through repetition as we see again and again from Apostle's testimony to yet another Apostle's testimony as we're reading the text of Holy Scripture, consistency of theme and word of instruction that we always need to be reminded of the great truths of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we find these patterns emerging One of the reasons I think the consistency of pattern or one of the consistency of patterns that emerge out of the book of Revelation, it strikes me as we approach Revelation 15. It's the question that I would pose to you in the quietness of your own heart as we look at yet again the patterns that are established in the book. Do you ever find it hard to believe that you are lovely to the Lord? Taking into account your sin, transgression, we looked last week and kind of defined what that would be, that it would be any failure to conform or any transgression of the law of God, and yet you proclaim to love Him and and want to walk with Him, be ministered to by Him as He would lead you with power, yet in that walk you see again transgression, sin, faithless behavior, cunning and unfair, kind rebuke and word, do you in those moments experience assessments of yourself where it is hard to believe that indeed you are found lovely? Or beyond the individual life as a believer, as a Christian, in this difficult age within which we live, do you find it hard to walk with the church, find the church to be lovely? Many of us, as we get to know one another, have had various challenges of finding local churches and what that local church would be like for us and how we fit within it and the experience we have with those who already attend it. And we find these challenges, and and the testimony is consistent with many of us, is it's just hard to find what we would consider to be a good church. I just step back from that to ask the question to each of us. Have you ever found it challenging to see the church as lovely? The gathering of the saints right now is a beautiful picture. We're always reminded in our walk with the church, corporately, individually, of the church's failures. Her blemishes. Oftentimes we're overcome with them. Wounded by them. Meditate on them. Allow those blemishes to define how we see. Those for whom Christ. Laid down his life. Revelation 15. Is that pattern that emerges. Throughout the book yet again. To give us perspective. I think it's interesting how the book of Revelation ministers to my heart as I would share with you. That's what a lot of preaching is. Sharing with you how the text is ministered to the, to the messenger. The pattern that emerges throughout the book has strengthened me 
and the need for accountability, discipleship. Because I see the pattern that emerges across the book yet again and again and again is that I'm not able with all my own insight to have consistency in my perspective. I need another voice. We've said this kind of various times. You're not able really to watch yourself by yourself. Your analysis breaks down. Your own blemishes hide promise from you. You know, I, yesterday I was watching um, college football, as many of you, I imagine, probably were also. And um, I now it's kind of fleeting my mind. I think it might have been in the Florida, which that might hurt some of you, in the Florida-Georgia game. Yesterday, yeah, you know. Uh, and, and this last little attempt to score a touchdown, and the individual uh, gets tackled and fumbles the ball, and then Georgia goes on and wins. If you notice what was taking place in him, I think it's a mirror of the Christian journey. Again, it struck me in the book of Revelation as I'm watching this individual. He wasn't able to contextualize himself what just happened to him. He couldn't speak a clear word to himself. That there's a whole football game that leads up to those moments. There's penalties that shouldn't have been had. There's bad plays that someone let someone else get sacked. That, like, there's more to it than this one moment. But you, you, you can't determine that. I lost the game. It's like, that's all you can see. No, you didn't, actually. Like, if, once we get to film and the coach begins screaming at all of us, we'll see where we all lost the game several points along the way. This is, we need perspective. And did you see, other people know you need perspective. They come to you at times of discouragement. They write you a note of encouragement. Because they see you need help. You need perspective. So the other football players on his team, if you watch that game at all, the the camera kept panning to this guy, showing like, look how devastated it is. He lost the game for everybody. And he's crying, and he's distraught. And yet, did you see the role of other individuals? They were all approaching him. You know, someone at some point was always hanging on him and hugging him, telling him, whispering in his ear, and we could all, as observers, guess, this is the role of the encourager. This is the person who's giving perspective. That that one man cannot get himself. His own narrative is telling him something else. And he can't work his way out of it. He can't just think differently. So the role of others is to come along. The book of Revelation continuously shows this pattern. The need for us, the church, to hear a word from the Lord on perspective. He introduced it to us in the first three chapters with the seven letters of the seven churches. This is what you're doing and this is how you assess your own situation. But I come to you as your Lord. Chapter one, what Pastor Dan read. The Son of Man high and lifted up that appears and he gives perspective. You say that you are poor, broken down. I know your poverty. But my assessment is you are rich. And he calls the church to come under him and live in light of his perspective, not your own. I would challenge each of you, if you're not engaged in accountability or some sense of discipleship or connectedness to one with another, you're not able to see your own life thoroughly. 
Someone needs to help. Someone needs your help. This is the pattern we see emerging throughout the church corporate in the book of Revelation. One day the church is going to be revealed. This is what we're about to look at, chapter 15. And she's going to take your breath away. Right now, she takes your breath away oftentimes in the way you kind of don't want it to. You gasp at what she's currently doing. You gasp at the lack of gospel you hear preached. You're burdened by her social choices that you see. You're wounded and you kind of move about within local assemblies. One day, the Lord Jesus is going to reveal the church that he bought with his own blood. And she, as you gaze upon her, as you participate with her, is going to take your breath away. It's important that we love the church. Not just maybe someday in heaven, but we love the church. We serve her, we walk with her, we encourage her, and we give perspective to her as she does with us as we walk with one another. This is the church. Let me read for you this beautiful picture that we're heading toward, the revelation of the church. Let me read for you chapter 15 of the book of Revelation, if you would please follow along in your text of Scripture. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels and seven plagues which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what happened to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. They were standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. They, that is, those who had conquered the beast, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? You remember that's the eternal gospel? proclamation of Christ who would not lay hold of your gospel for you alone are holy all nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed after this I looked in the sanctuary of the tent of witness and heaven was opened and of the sanctuary came, out of the sanctuary came seven angels and seven plagues clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels we're finished. For the next couple of moments, I want to present your picture here of the biblical perspective of the battle that we are engaged in as the church. 
If you look there in verse 1, you see, Then I saw another sign in heaven. Right now, as a good student, you're asking yourself, another sign, where is the other sign that this sign is the another of? And you're going back to chapter 12. If you look back with me a page or two in your text of Scripture, you see this is the language that connects the two other signs that heaven is giving us a concluding word on. Chapter 12, you see the first great sign that John is speaking of here in 15.1. He's speaking of in 12.1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. It was a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. This woman here, sign number one on your Uh, on your eschatology chart here, as you're marking out all the signs and the categories, sign number one that John is seeing is a woman who is in agony getting ready to give birth. Do you recall, so far we've already traveled through this text of Scripture, who is the woman that John is beholding here that is getting ready to give birth? It is indeed the Messianic community, the Church of Christ. Both old and new covenant believers, it is the one people of God from whom the Messiah will come. Her trials and tribulations, her struggling and her strife that is about to give birth to the Deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ. I saw sign number one, a woman. I saw the church. Yet there is another sign. Look in your text if you see sign number two, verse three, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his head seven diadems his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast him to the earth and the dragon stood before the woman now the two signs are coming together in the end of verse four the dragon stands before the woman that is satan standing before the church who was about to give birth so that when she bore the child he might devour it she gave birth to a male child one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to, his flo- and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she is a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for the church age. So there are back in chapter 15 here, we have two signs, the woman and the dragon And these two are in conflict. By the time you get through chapter 12 and you get to chapter 13, remember at the end of chapter 12, the dragon is angry at the church for God is caring for the church. He's providing for the church. He's feeding the church. He's nourishing the church, caring for them, just as he has Israel of the Old Testament. You remember, since the book of Revelation has been going, Revelation is paralleled in many ways to the Old Testament journey of Israel. And the church is living out its existence in a parallel fashion. So too in chapter 12, the church is in the wilderness where God is preparing a place and nourishing her for 42 months. Parallel to that of Israel. The dragon is angry that God is loving and caring for His church that He bought with His own Son who was born of a virgin. Lived a perfect life. Gaining eternal life for all He represented laid down his life, and remains the surety of the covenant blessings for every single one of them. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, caught up in resurrected glory to the Father, and the dragon is angry. 
he pursues the woman. So he turns and he makes war with her. By the time we get to chapter 13, he calls forth the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. Verse 7, by the time we get after the introduction of who the beasts are, by the time we get to verse 7, how is the church doing? Well, according to an earthly perspective, she's all but obliterated. He is conquering the saints. He is making war with them and devouring them. By the time we go from verse 7, where the beast that is fueled by the dragon, angry with the church, seeking to destroy her, verse 10 says, there's a grim reality to the life of the church going through this present age. To captivity, one will go. Being slain by the sword, so one will be slain. There is a certain grim reality about the devastating effects of the dragon upon the church community throughout the church age. So the church begins to ask questions. Do you still reign in glory? We're being devastated on the earth. Are you still pledging to overcome our enemies? We're being overcome now. So too in your own life. Am I still lovely to you, given my failures? Are you still the lover of my soul that has purchased me on a cross when I have so dishonored you with my life in the struggles that I face? Are you still Lord? And am I still loved? And the word of Christ comes to you so clearly to affirm You are greatly loved. I will not lose one. You just need perspective. See beyond the struggle. See beyond the trial. To get past the present difficulty. So the word of Christ comes so clearly to you. On a word of perspective. That's where we're heading in this passage. But the second effect of our passage so far we see there are two signs. There is the woman and there is the dragon. And now John is seeing yet another sign. What is this final sign? It is the outcome of the struggle. Sign one, the woman, the church community. Sign two, the dragon. And they're in mortal combat, as it were. And sign number three is God's word on the outcome of the woman and the dragon struggle. Heaven's perspective on the battle that will be won. book of Revelation, as it speaks these powerful words about God overcoming, it tells you to do what with this information? Here is a call to the saints for endurance. Let's look at another sign here in verse 15, chapter uh, chapter 15, verse 1, and here is the third. I saw yet another sign in heaven. So we have woman, dragon, in mortal combat, and then we see This final sign. Great and amazing is the sign. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. Here is the final outcome about the earthly battle that we are involved in. Here John describes the coming judgment of the seven angels with seven plagues is the ultimate and final 
outcome of the woman that's struggling with the dragon, the beast and the false prophet. Seven angels are coming with seven plagues to give the church the ultimate victory. If you were able to kind of put together in your mind, what is it that these seven angels, how could I think of them in just kind of a nutshell way? If I think of chapter 15 and I think of verse 1 and 2, how can I kind of think about this ultimate outcome? It is these seven angels with these seven plagues will be the instruments whereby God's wrath will be exhausted upon all who have, one, denied his son, as a consequence of denying the Son, have persecuted the church that the Son has purchased. God's glory is being diminished in the work of His glory of redemption. The final outcome to the church who is struggling, who is experiencing temptation and trial, difficulty, persecution, and suffering woman and the dragon. Here's heaven's perspective. God's wrath will be exhausted. For all who gazed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who drank the bitter cup of wrath for his own, for all sinners who would trust in him, those who said that work of wrath appeasement is not enough for me, They will experience the exhausting of God's wrath forever. We covered this last week. We need not belabor the point. God's wrath will be exhausted upon all who deny the Son and persecute the church. As we continue through our text this word of wrath, I want to come back to what I introduced to you as the point of the pattern within which how are we to recognize wrath? Because do you find it somewhat last week and this week about a wine press of wrath, about God, the eternal power, pouring forth and exhausting? Have you ever been exhausted? I mean, just completely wiped out of all of your capacity? Thinking of that as the wrath of God being exhausted, we have no concept for what that it will be like outside of what we saw in the cross of Christ. How that will continue forever. And in this thought, do you struggle with receiving those words? Or are you just kind of either one, A, it's fantasy, or two, you don't really believe it? Or you're just callous to it? Like, I don't know what it is, it's imagery that's way overload for me and I just don't get involved in it. How are you receiving it? Because... I think the pattern that emerges through the text of Holy Scripture for the saints of the Most High, even though we glory in the Lord's work, we struggle with receiving the devastating effect upon all who have rejected the Son. Thus, we watch in modern culture, many people just don't believe in it anymore, and many just won't preach it, even if they do believe it in private. And when they're pressed by the press to make a comment about wrath, they say, well, I just try not to meditate on things that seem to be hurtful to other folks. Well, we receive as the church of Christ. We're not allowed to do that. So how are we supposed to handle wrath? Well, Scripture's pattern shows us how to handle wrath. The the pattern that's emerging through the book of Revelation 
is that we're always given a glimpse of glory and majesty before we have to contextualize wrath. That is, there's a picture of heaven that is shown. We gaze upon the one who is just in all his ways. And then from this theater, from this picture, we now are equipped to contextualize his work of wrath. Let me show you how that pattern is established right before we get to it in chapter 15. You remember, the first portion where we began to deal with the wrath of God inflicted upon humanity is where the seal judgments are broken. And that's chapter 6 of the book of Revelation. You remember the Lord Jesus rises and he begins in verse 1 of chapter 6 to break the seals that are on the scroll and to unleash the preliminary wrath of the Lord upon the earth. That happened at the resurrection. How are we supposed to receive these devastating effects that are being given to the earth by the Lord? Deny them and block them out. Say that God is love. Therefore, this wrath is not real. We cannot do that. To glory in it and be like, every person I can't stand at Giant Eagle is going to get chapter 6 on them. And I cannot wait until that person who hit my car and just drove off gets judgment. Uh, not necessarily the best constructive biblical way of handling what is the very real wrath of war. So again, we come under the text of Scripture to even learn how to handle such difficult doctrine. And we find that just before chapter 6, we were given a picture of heaven's glory in chapter 4 and chapter 5. We saw God high and lifted up, who is acknowledged as the only sovereign over all the land and all the sea. We see the Lamb who laid down his life to gather people who will confess his name as Lord and believe in the resurrection, gathered by his blood sacrifice forever to honor him. And with heaven's picture, where we are confident in all that heaven does, we are then given a context for receiving wrath. Will not the maker of heaven and earth do right? He will. So we get a glimpse of who he is so that we can understand what he's doing. If you go from the judgments of chapter 6, the next one would be around, uh, let's see, the, the, from, from the, the seal judgments to the trumpet judgments. You have that in chapter s- s- 8. It's where the trumpet judgments begin. What is it yet again we have in chapter 7? A picture of glory that strengthens us. The cries of worthy is the Lord our God, the Almighty. We see the promise in heaven where the compassion, the mercy of the Lord wipes away every tear that is in the eye. No more hurt, no more suffering, The ruler of righteousness is on his throne, ruling justly. And with that empowered thought, we move into wrath to receive it rightly. Not excuse God from it. He doesn't really act this way. This isn't really his doing. It's something he kind of has to somewhat begrudgingly do. It's not your job, saint, or mine to defend him. We are under him. Well, then who is he? He is right in all that he does. He is full of mercy and compassion. He has sacrificed his son in love. He condemned the son 
who stood in our place that we might not be condemned. We don't excuse him. We rightly understand him. If you go into chapter 15, what is it right there at the beginning before we see wrath poured out? We're going to see it in chapter 16, 17, 18, 19. We're going to see the wrath of God on display. What are we given just before we go into wrath? A picture of heaven and its beauty. This is the consistency imagery. This is the pattern that is established. That the saints of God would receive rightly the coming deeds of God. By recognizing they are grounded in the character of God. This is how you are to understand the wrath of God. It is grounded in His holiness. It is grounded in His moral purity. It is grounded in His perfection. He will pour forth and exhaust His wrath on humanity. And it will be just in all that He does. Turn with me to one text I want to read for you so that you can kind of wrap your mind around the justice of God as He pours forth wrath upon humanity forever. Look with me in Romans. If you turn to the book of Romans, this is what Paul was dealing with in chapter 11. Really beginning in verse nine, or chapter 9, 10, and 11, Paul is dealing with election and the role of wrath of the Lord in all that is taking place in redemptive history, in the complexity of judgment, salvation, and deliverance. And at the end of the discussion in chapter 11, beginning in verse 33, this is how Paul would ask us, likewise, to receive the very complex and difficult work of God. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Is this your heart, Christian? You're not in the business of excusing him. You're not saying this is not how God will act. You're not undercutting the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and saying somehow in an godless manner, every single person in the earth will be saved. Or that all people somehow through soul sleep will eventually work their way into heaven. Purgatory. This is not the case of Christian doctrine. But do we glory in it? How do we rightly receive it? By Scripture's own testimony. We come under the judgments of God. And we agree with our Creator, as Paul does here. Wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. Verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Or who has given Him a gift that He might be somehow repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. This is the perspective of the book of Revelation. This is how the saints are to contextualize wrath. Will not the maker of heaven and earth do right? Hosea 14.9, speaking on the work of God to Israel. And, and if, you, if you go into the way that Hosea was speaking to Israel, they are in captivity at the time, experiencing tremendous difficulty. 
tremendous difficulty and captivity. Slavery. Hosea, the prophet, as he speaks to the nation in this very difficult context, difficult doctrine, a difficult way to receive the work of God. Do we rewrite it? Do we humbly submit to it? He says, the ways of the Lord are right. To the upright who walk in them. They're a stumbling block to the transgressor. You see, all the deeds of God, wrath, redemption, deliverance, persecution, difficulty, trial, and tribulation, all the deeds of God, Revelation says, are great and amazing. How do we come to that judgment? Through our own feeble sense? Through biblical submission? We come to the text and we receive all the deeds of God. We find they are grounded in the very character of God. All his ways are holy. All his ways are righteous. All his ways are inscrutable to the human mind. We are not his judge. He is the judge of heaven and earth. This is the work of God as we would recognize it throughout the book of Revelation. And just before we get to the wrath of God, we are seeing the beauty of the church revealed in heaven. Notice the rejoicing that the church does in the wrath of God. This will be the church in the future. As we gather around the throne, here is the beautiful picture of the church beginning in verse 2 as we respond to the wrath of God from verse 1. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image. This is the church. Those who are not marked by the number of his name. But you remember chapter 14, they're marked with the name of God on their forehead and on their hands. They are here and they are standing beside the sea of glass. The church is here. And they sing the song of Moses, servant of God. The song of the Lamb. Do you see that? You say, I will never, ever sing of the wrath of God. You will, saint, as you come to see it grounded in your God. In his holiness. In his perfection. In his beauty. You will rejoice when it is exhausting. What is the role of the saint today? We look in chapter 14. The missionary institution of proclaiming the eternal gospel. Fear God and give him the glory. So he continues to develop this song again. Are you surprised here in chapter 15 that the song of Moses is its content? That Dan, Pastor Dan, read this morning from the book of Exodus. Are you surprised by now? Some of you who have joined us just in the last couple of chapters might be a little bit. Those of you who have been long, if you remember any of the messages that have come up to this point, (laughs) you're not so surprised. I'm just going to bank on that being the, the biggest case here. I don't know if I could remember them all. A lot of words have been spoken. We shouldn't be surprised, let me just say that. Because again, it's consistent with the pattern of the book. We've been living out Israel's parallel history only under the new covenant ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, since the very beginning of the book. So here it's the song of Moses. All that God did to Pharaoh and his enemies, they were cast in the sea. The sea overcame them. They sank like rocks to the bottom. 
And the church rejoiced, gave him the glory and the praise for exacting justice on his enemies and saving his people. That that took place, deliverance, justice, redemption, that which took place with Israel coming out of the exodus has now finally occurred in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's both now the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. All that Israel pointed to, all that Israel's events foreshadowed have been fulfilled, consummated in the Lamb. That's why Jesus can speak of Moses and he can say this in John 6. If you believed in Moses, you believe in me because Moses wrote about me. That's why at the end of redemptive history, all saints from both covenants, old and new, will sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. For all that Moses foreshadowed has come to fulfillment in the Lamb. Both songs will come together and the one people of God will sing it forever. It will take your breath away. We'll sing it together. You and me. We'll join with Abraham. Singing the song of Moses. As he sees it in Jesus. And we'll sing the song of Moses. As we see it in Jesus. One people conquered by the one work of the one lamb. This is the beautiful picture of the church. My closing moments with you now are a little bit different. I'm not going to do any kind of weird gymnastics or anything like that if that's what you're nervous about now. I kind of usually stick within a form. I'm just going to take a moment here because I think it's uh, maybe pastorally will serve you for a couple of moments. I just want to speak about heaven. Something some of us struggle with. Right now, currently, we're struggling it within our house with Owen. I always use him because he's kind of emerging into that questioner for us. So we're right now, we're kind of shepherding and shaping him and some of the questions we have for him. Some of the questions he has for us are tremendously difficult. And he asked me, I don't, he says to me, I don't know if I would want to go to heaven. None of you are shocked and nobody fell out of their chair. And I have a good assumption why. You too kind of bear the burden that Owen bears. I'm not sure if I want to go there. Oh, don't get me wrong. I do want to go there. I I don't want to go to hell. And I love the Lord Jesus. I want to be where he is. And that means heaven. But I'm fairly uncertain in my heart of hearts what heaven entails. And there's a lot of popular writing on heaven, and I'm not sure which of it's true or not. So I feel confused and overwhelmed, so I'm not so sure I really want to be there. I do, but I kind of don't. We're torn. I think that the point in which a five-year-old feels that same sense of, this is all that I know and experience, and I can't really picture what you're explaining, so I'm not so sure I want to cross the threshold. His point, I just hope I don't die. That, the, the ultimate avoidance. Unfortunately, I have to share a word. Everyone dies. So you have to cross this threshold at some point. I want to speak to you on, on three points briefly. That is heaven's life. So you're kind of thinking, okay, how would I, how would I contextualize heaven? Heaven's life, heaven's language, heaven's love. 
these three pieces just for a moment. Because you see in the text there, there's a comment that says that the saints of God are gathered around singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And do you see that picture that's often in cartoons or a caricature of heaven? They have something in their hands. Do you see that in the text? They have the harps of God in their hands. So right there, we're all like, I'm not so sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's great, but I'm not so sure what's all going on there. And I don't know how it's going to be so great when all we're doing is one, singing, and number two, playing harps. I'm not even to the harp now. I don't know that I'll be into it then, let alone forever. So the, the challenges come to us about, you know, we want to be citizens of heaven, kind of. So we struggle at this point of these wonderful visions that were given in the text of Holy Scripture about the glories of heaven because somehow it's tainted with this view of playing harps forever. I want to strengthen you just for a moment about heaven. How can we have access to understanding what heaven's future is, heaven's life, number one? What's it going to be like? If I could share with you just a pastoral word once again, how do we understand every text of Scripture? The same way. We look to Jesus. So too we look to Jesus yet again for our life in heaven. What will it be like? It won't be bodiless. Heaven's life will entail you, saint, being raised with a body. Some of us think that we would confess that by our creed, but we're more Gnostic in our thought. We're somehow floating about as spirits. We're not. You will be raised to be like him. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ. It gives us form to our understanding of our life in heaven also. Do you remember after he was raised, he met with his disciples. And he was cooking up some fish. And he was eating it. What are we to receive from this? Heaven's life entails eating. He embraced his disciples and was embraced by them. Not as a ghost. You remember? That was Thomas. You're not really going on here. I could put my hand right here. Touch me. He appeared on the beach to restore Peter. And he was cooking breakfast. And they ate. And they embraced. One author says it this way. God gave us the senses in creation. Not just to throw them away later. If we look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, you indeed will see. <laughs> you will taste. You will smell. You will hear. And you will touch. All your senses now, tainted by the fall, will be in full satisfaction for eternity with the Lord. You think food tastes good now? Wait till we eat with the Lord at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It'll be explosive. How, are we just making this up? Look to Christ. Heaven's life. You will never be unsatisfied. Do you feel unsatisfied sometimes with your life right now? Not so in heaven. You will not be unsatisfied. You won't be bored doing this. 
Heaven's life is full. Secondly, heaven's language. Look with me in the text just briefly, and I'll close with you in just a moment, my final word to you. But look at the language right here of the content of your language. Verse 3, they sang the song. Look at the content. Great and amazing are your deeds. Do you see where the saint's language begins? Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Look at the content of the saints' language. Notice what they are saying, but take a moment with me, if you would, and recognize what they are not saying. They're not saying, great and amazing are my deeds. How does this orient your life now, what you will be saying then? Great and amazing was my life as a father. Look what I did with my children and blew the whistle and they all lined up. Great and amazing are my deeds. Look at the way that I was able to cut my way through the maze of life and achieve the apex. Look at it. Oh, wait a minute. No, that's not what I'm doing here. Great and amazing are your deeds, O oh God. Look at the way in which I academically excelled and beat all my classmates to the punch. That is not the content of glory. Let it not be our content now. Who will serve forever is who we're serving today. Great and amazing are your deeds, O God. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. This is the ethic of the people of God. Don't strive to be someone and something for your own ends. It'll be gone when you're translated to glory in a moment. You won't rehearse it to all the saints. Dietrich Bonhoeffer made this comment. He said, when the saints come together, they often have this attitude as they begin to swap stories one with another. Really, in the back of the mind is that which was shared by the disciples before Christ. Which one of us do you think is greater in the kingdom of God? He said, this is the comment in the mind of the saint when they meet in the sanctuary. Don't. Don't strive for that now. You won't ever rehearse it in glory. The final piece is, uh, if I could even remember my alliteration, heaven's um, love. I wanted to encourage you right now, this is my last word to you this morning. It's interesting, as I've been going through the book of Revelation, I, uh, I've experienced death. More in the last two months, I haven't personally died and come back. I'm not making that confession. I'm making a word about experiencing the challenging pathways of death to those within our assembly, those outside of our assembly who experience death and pain. 
And it's always hard to kind of think of who died and where they went and what's being done with them and if you'll ever see them again. And exactly out of the millions of people that Christ has redeemed, will I see them? Will they see me? How will we know? Will we connect or won't we? And the challenge is to speak a word. There is one individual who is getting ready to pass, perhaps, uh, that is connected with Dan and I, uh, away from us at the time. And then a couple other individuals who have recently passed. I got, a, I got a text the other morning from my mother saying someone I grew up with passed away the other morning. Um, I want to encourage you, if you've experienced death, or as we experience death together in this assembly in the days ahead, you will see them again. That body that lays in that casket and is buried will be raised. Do you see that? Look to Christ. You laid them in that casket, they will be raised. That hug that you experienced with them at that moment, you'll experience it again. Christ will transform that body that you buried. You will dine with them again. You will embrace them and they will embrace you again. And you might, just might, even play golf. Are we not allowed? Heaven's joys are going to be stunning. And we're going to be there as we're hidden in Christ. Let us live that way now. Great and amazing are his deeds. Let us pray. Father, we think of glory and we think of the work of Christ in gathering us from death, transferring us from the domain of Satan into the kingdom of the beloved Son forever. I pray for your church that we will be informed by the text of Holy Scripture to not fear heaven, but to see it the way you intended for us to see its glory, its beauty, its newness. That we're not going to waste away, but we're going to be renewed. Our senses are going to peak. Our love relationships are going to be without sin and genuine and real. And our joys that await us are untold. And at the center, that gives meaning to all of it is the Lamb whose deeds we will sing and recount forever. Hallelujah to the Lamb of God who has gathered a people by His own blood through the eternal gospel. Let us thankfully receive it and let us faithfully proclaim it as we await His return. Christ Jesus, resurrected name, we do pray. Amen.